Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to help music impacts people's lives. We have two co-hosts for this episode. My name, of course, is Sean Rancunas. My friend in his white t-shirt, as always, is my friend Hunter Sagona. And we believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our future guests, jamming to incredible music. Talk about a wide variety of artists and composers. Dot, 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 dot. Hunter likes to say we got paid for the dot, but everything in between that sentence. With that said, we'll be discussing Percy Granger's, in a nutshell, his symphonic suite today. According to the gnomes at Wikipedia, the first movement, Arrival Platform Hamlet, was originally written in 1908 for solo viola as one of Granger's earliest works. Uh, In his words, the Hamlet, which he defined as a little dirty to hum, or sorry, little ditty to hum, not dirty to hum. I mean, it could be if you'd like. Um, came from awaiting the arrival of a belated train bringing one's sweetheart from foreign parts. The sort of thing one hums to oneself as an accompaniment to one's tramping feet as one happily, excitedly paces up and down the platform. And you can tell that he is of British origin, even though I think he was, what, Australian? Australian, yeah. Yes, uh, but of, of, of uh, the English persuasion because they use the C impersonal, in case you were wondering, which is the one... Um, for those grammar nerds out there. Um, uh, Anthony Bateman of The Guardian ranked it as one of the top ten best pieces inspired by trains. The second movement, Gay But Wistful, is subtitled as a tune in a in a popular London style, referring to a music hall, a popular genre of entertainment in Victorian England. The staff uh, description for its all-music entry, uh, Dave Lewis notes that the piece... While clearly English in style, had a jazz-influenced harmonic practice. Sorry, jazz-inflected harmonic practice. I'm just botching this all up. (laughs) Similar to the future approach of jazz composer Duke Ellington, which actually I had a similar thought about when I was listening to it. Not specifically Duke Ellington, but I actually had that thought about jazz. And unlike the other three movements, Granger did not provide program notes for pastoral which is the longest movement of the work, lasting approximately 10 minutes. It is noted that the standout piece in this work being an early representative in his interest of atonal and free music, in which he shied away from traditional harmony and form. Musicologist Paul Fleet cites the movement as an early example of metatonality, as a piece which sits between the boundaries of tonality and atonality. The fourth and last movement is the Gumsucker's March, originally titled Cornstalk's March, in early versions of the score. According to Granger, the title makes reference to Australians from the state of Victoria, where Granger was from. Residents would often suck the the leaves of gum trees to stay cool in the summer. This movement was later arranged for band by the composer in 1942 and has become the standard repertoire for the medium. And off we go, talking about some more Granger. And we're going to take a break now. And remember that if you would like to support this podcast, please go to Spotify for Podcasters. You can also search Music Speaks Podcasts on multiple listening platforms, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, and many, many more. And in the spirit of Percy Granger, here's a line from Percy from Harry Potter, or about him now. Percy wouldn't recognize a joke if it danced naked in front of him wearing Dobby's tea cozy. 
said Ron Weasley, responding to Hermione. All right, and we are starting out with section uh, one, and by section I mean, for those in the musical, of the musical persuasion, I mean uh, movement number one, um, which is the arrival at Platform Hamlet. Um, and, you know, the first thing that struck me was, you know, platform implies train. So even if you didn't know that this was, you know, what they were going for, platform does sort of give that indication. Um, and the staccato passages at the beginning and the, the many percussive instruments I found really give the imagery of machinery and trains. Like there's a, there's a very metallic and, and, um, machine-like quality that you, you get just from the opening of this piece. Yeah. And I think that's the, probably the most prominent part of the first movement, in my opinion. And there's also some tonality in there that I think is very John Williamsy. Um, and I, I wonder if he ever, you know, listen, I'm sure at some point he listened to Granger, but I don't know if he ever really thought of it as an inspiration or maybe he did. I don't know. Um, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, Sean. Yeah, definitely whimsical. Um, also to your point about this sounding like a train station, were you able to look through the orchestration for this movie yeah. for the percussion section? I have mm-hmm. to read you the amount of instruments, kettle drum, side drum, cymbals, gong, big drum, glockenspiel, Deegan steel marimba, hawks, rosanophone, Deegan staff bells, xylophone, Deegan wooden marimba, Deegan nubimba. I have no idea what that is. The Namibimba. I don't even. I've never heard of that. Maybe you can look up what the Namibimba is as we're going along. But what I find so interesting about this piece specifically for me is that it does speak to me as if it's going and being at a very bustling train station. Like no one really wants to be at a train station, if we're honest. But like Ranger (laughs) has a really great sense of what that's like and has a very like earthy tone to it, you know? And Mm -hmm. I find that the piece itself is so grounded and interesting. And something that you know that he does is he really, he likes to really fixate on certain pitches throughout the entire thing. Yeah, I noticed that. And and then interesting enoughly in this one and also in the pastoral section is that there really is no key center in this at all. There might be like a sense of like a key. There really isn't one for me. It's very open-ended and it doesn't really, it still ends that way. And we've seen Granger do that before with his open fifths progression, like like there's really no, like there's really no end or start to it. You know, it just kind of just starts, you know? And I feel like Uh that is such a great aspect of Granger that I feel just resides in the sound and the sense of, of what he is. And I think you said it really well. I think the one thing that we want to take away from this movement is the amount of percussion, the amount of metal that we hear in this piece. And that like, there's all this hustle and bustle. And yet there is this kind of like very like shifty melody that's kind of happening as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is this musical thing happening, but there's also like, he does this really cool thing too. Like there there's very something very melodically, but he puts a lot of work into the background figures of this piece to really make sure it sounds like you're in a train station and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, there is a, there is a very distinct uh, ambiance to the piece that goes beyond the actual music itself. Like even the way the instruments resonate, like uh, he chose specific instruments to give the specific feel and sound to it. Um, And just a quick thing. So it's called the, the Nabimba. Mm an abimba and it's uh, a five octave marimba bar type instrument 
Of course, of course it is. The only one that J.C. Deegan ever built, according to <laughs> according to our friends at Antiquity Music. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. So, and, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say, but to your other point, it's like the the um, it's important for an opener. You know the the opening section, the first movement to really set the tone, and I don't I don't just mean like tonality versus atonality. I just mean the tone as in what the audience expects from the rest of the piece. Mm-hmm. And I think this does a pretty good job of sort of setting up where we are yeah. when it starts. Yeah. And then, based on what you had said about you know his his writings about the other movements, you know it gives you a clear path. Right. Yeah. And and interestingly enough, too, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit, but the aspect of wash of sound and something that I feel like is sort of like the breakthrough through this contemporary sound of music is that instead of creating the, the piece itself, he's creating the atmosphere that really goes along with the piece as well, sort of yeah. establishing almost the beginning of film music, perhaps. And yeah, then, I think it's definitely an early, which is funny because I make a reference to that uh, a little bit later. So yeah. uh, it, it's funny that you should mention that um, because I actually think that leads us well into the second movement, which um, is so very different, but does still fit with that aesthetic. There's your word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, the second movement is called, uh, oh, unless you have anything else about the first one. You know, honestly, I just wanted to say, like, throughout the entire thing, there is this sense of of color and wisp. Again, sort of, sort of similar, like you were saying, trying to make that comparison to the second movement because it mm-hmm. does it does transition very nicely. Um, it does. But there is this amount of hustle and bustle, and yet there is this sense of like of of sounding exactly what we what I was looking for with your grandfather clock, right? There is this <laughs> there is this aesthetic to the piece that is so grounded and beautiful and different and so layered and focused you know what i mean mm-hmm. and and still like the clock like, would have uh, fit well in it <laughs> exactly yeah i know like getting p- people on time and and the fact that there's i think what maybe we didn't talk about a little bit about the first movement and maybe i'll let you kind of talk about this a little bit or maybe you want to go on but i find that there's also like this mysteriousness to this movement as well like mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of questions right that we well feel. yeah it's it's funny because when you when we were reading the program notes and it mentioned about like you know anxiously waiting for a for a lover of I don't want to say lover but like a, a love of some sort, um, that implies like an innocence and there are certain parts of this that to me doesn't really scream innocence like it just screams like nervous energy, mm, you know what I mean? True. But nervous energy can come from being anxious. It can come from being like nervous, obviously, hence the name. Um, for a variety of reasons. And obviously yeah. the one he had in mind was, was that particular reason. But right. I don't know if I exactly get that from the certain parts of this. Others I do, but mm-hmm. not all of them maybe because it seems like, I don't want to say, uh, uh, I don't want to say like dark, but there are darker hues to the music. Right. I think that that comes with the train station itself. Like there are. Yes, the actual of, building almost. Right. And and even though Granger is writing about it, there are things that he might not really understand, like schedules and when they come into the station and the machinery that goes into building these these, these monstrosities, like like how like how they all work and and how they're all regimented on time and like mm-hmm. the tempo. And I think there's a lot of like of that happening. So like the aesthetic of of not really knowing 
but kind of being more curious about what's going to happen next, you know? And I think that's something that we kind of see in this music where I think we're starting to really get to the idea. And I think Granger does a really good job of it. And thus the identity of a really great Joe Hisaishi that the music doesn't necessarily have to say exactly what you're trying to say. There mm-hmm. a, and, and sort of similar to what I was saying, there's the wash of sound. Like there's just this, it's, it, it, it just kind of takes you back. Like when I talk about the pastoral, that being my favorite movement, that being the atonal and the free section, but this sort of, this sort of sets a very, very basic framework for that movement in a way where you sort of have this altering sound, but it's, it's very, but I find it to be because the first, second and fourth movements are very characteristic of specific things and three being sort of a more wide open, like if someone asked you why, and you kind of were able to elaborate for like 10 minutes on a random subject, you know what I mean? But this one specifically feels a chance for Granger to just kind of explore in different avenues. And, and still, I mean, maybe we haven't talked about this a bit too, but the melody that we hear in this piece, right? I don't really Mm -hmm. know if like, I don't like, and I, and I feel like there was something for me that I struggled with um, physically was figuring out, what the melody was and the form was and trying to like piece that together because it never really felt like a very solid form. It felt more through composed as Mm -hmm. in like there really wasn't a return to an A section or a B section to me. So yeah, I don't think so. Sort of a very more developmental movement for me anyway. Much as a train would, right? It just keeps plowing through. Exactly. Yeah. Eventually getting to the station. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We hope. Yeah. Um, so, well, no, I, I mean, I agree with everything you said. Like, I, I don't know that I could say any of it better. And I think that it sets it up well um, transitionally because with it being through composed, bum, 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 I think bum, that... Oh, I feel like it, in that in that way, I'm sorry to cut you off again, but... It allows trans- for... Yeah, so the first thing that, that struck me, and, and this will eventually get to answer your question, but um, the first thing that struck me about the second movement was obviously it shifts to compound meter. And, um, the first thing I thought of in my head was Pixar hmm. because the early Pixar scores are very Americana based and, um, like we're talking Bugs Life, Toy Story. And I mentioned that later on, True. um, Randy Newman has a very specific composing style, which he worked on, you know, Toy Story. Um, and I think he did Bugs, Bugs Life also, and he also did Monsters, Inc. And my point being is that Americana music, right? Um, a lot of the early, um, what we would come to think of as Americana had foundations that would be used for jazz, Mm. right? So, Mm. you know, that in combination with obviously various other things would eventually give us jazz. So I think hearing those early roots in a piece like this, um, because Americana music, the roots come from Irish folk tunes that were brought over here from um ireland in combination with so like that appalachian sound like um what copeland would have used um in combination obviously then with like um black spirituals and plantation songs and the two of them gave us what we would later refer to as ragtime jazz all that stuff um and this particular one obviously is very i feel reminiscent of like um what we would think of as like you know pioneering music like they're on a covered wagon, pioneering through the thing, you know, it's like, okay. Um, although I also get that very much from the, uh, uh, what do you call it? From the, um, 
fourth movement, but obviously we'll get there eventually. Um, this particular movement also, I think, of all the movements, is it, it's so light and so delicate, but there's also grander parts of it. But in it, the grandness never detracts from the delicacy of the movement. Yes. Which I think is also very important because um, with jazz, often you don't want it to be heavy, right? Yeah. You want it light, you want it fast, you want it quick. And then if you have a piece like this, you could easily see how um, the, the style might be conducive to eventually maybe, you know, transitioning it somehow into yeah. later later styles. But speaking of lightness, I just have so many thoughts about this particular moment. <laughs> um, it's like feeling bouncing all over the place. If anyone's listening and your head is spinning, my apologies. Right. Um, I love the way that the melodies are passed between each of the parts like to strings to oboes to high woodwinds to horns these little snippets where it's the same thing passed over and over again each one giving their own coloration and we talked about this with um beethoven when we were talking about how he does that with with his work also Mm -hmm. um and it adds like uh it adds a well, a change of character because each instrument is different, but it also keeps the piece interesting because you might not expect the transition to each of the instruments. Hmm. But this particular piece is, you know, it's dun, 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 dun. So it has like a lilt to it also. It's very, very cool. Um, and before I stop monopolizing, the one like measure note I did note was I was actually looking at the the measures on the electronic score that was accompanying the piece. And I think it's measure 53. Hmm. I didn't look to see in the actual score if it's also 53. But, oh wait, hang on, I can tell you right here because I have it open. 51, 52, 53. Oh, look at that, it is. Um, I absolutely love, in measure 53, there's that those triplets that have the horns descending in a chromatic fashion. I don't know if you know exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. but yeah, yeah. Um, bop, 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 bop. yeah, that, yeah. It's it's so cool, and it's re- so fast. Like, you'd miss it if you weren't paying attention to it, but I was listening to it, I heard that. I was like, oh, I must go back and hear that again. So I, Because I now count the measures. I was like, where is that? <laughs> you know what's So that's sort of my... That was my ramble. Yeah, I want to I take some stuff out of that from what you just said. I want to start yeah, go ahead. That, la- that last point. Because something that Granger does really well is, is mess with texture. Mm-hmm. And something that I think he does really well, especially in that part, because he, he he kind of understands that in that moment it's very peaceful. But then mm-hmm. finding a way to just kind of poke out, pop 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 pop, right? It's just it's yep. it's, it's sort of again sort of goes back to some of his satire and some of his music, where like you can play against the aesthetic of beautiful versus the the aesthetic of like really nosy and picky, you know. And I think that that's something that he's kind of like he's kind of like sort of giving a nose to. Up, 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 you know, in a way. Yeah. So I feel like that's really cool, and and so I I write this out a lot in my, in my notes. But um, the masterclass that you really see in in his writing is it's 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 brilliant, and 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 what I'll say about that is most of the time when he's writing out certain specific pieces, this one catches my eye because of the way that he he uses the the canon. And he uses the aspect of, um, what else did I say? Uh, timbre. Timbre, mm-hmm. especially in this movement. I think he understands the color of the clarinet. And I think that that really does settle on the color of this piece, especially in the beginning of the piece. 
I think he yeah. knows it's bright. One other instrument is a bright color. Trumpet, but not as not as rounded as a clarinet. So I think right. that I think that in a way it it makes perfect sense to start with clarinet in this piece because E major by its tendency is a very bright colored key. And so not that I have synesthesia or anything, but I just I just <laughs> I just I kind of understand because of the G sharps, it's a very bright color um, for me anyway. And if Mary was here, I'm sure she would, she would agree with me on that. But that would just be sort of something that it just kind of takes you by surprise, and and sort of goes back to the title of the piece a bit, where you're sort of like, what does gay and wistful mean? Okay, so for me, that means nostalgia. And and that kind of returns to well, maybe I wanted to talk about previously in the first movement is something that I feel like um, a human humanitarian trait that I believe Granger puts in all of his music is nostalgia. And I feel oh, like well, we, yeah, yeah, and I feel like that's something that we really see throughout this piece. Um, well, and, go ahead. That is connected to. Um, we associate as listeners because we've been trained. I think we've been trained to, but also I think it's inherent to the music. The the folk songs that I that I mentioned were the old Irish folk tunes that were brought here and 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 were collected in Appalachia, mm. which then people like Copeland used, right. and I imagine people like Granger used on, over on the other side of the world. Mm. They're meant to do that. They're meant to evoke that sense of nostalgia. So putting them in. Yes, it's a con or putting the tonality in as a conscious choice. Yeah. Yeah. And and through that, then we sort of see these connections between some of these these falls that happen. Body bottom or um body I'm sure we hear that so many times mm -hmm. in this piece. Um and, and that, sometimes with the canon effect that you mentioned, right? Dee, yeah. da, 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 dee, right. Da, da. right. And I think it's, it's so well done too. And that is such a, um, I believe sort of an English trope or maybe a trope that he probably picked up on because it is sort of a, around in a way mm -hmm. where you would start somewhere and then it kind of pick up a, a bar later and sort of very similar to that too, where he starts to mess with that as well. He says, okay, maybe instead of a bar, maybe I'll just do a beat instead, you know? And that yep. kind of messes with that as well, but still presents the idea that there is this sense of, of, of belonging and moving and sort of sort of similar to that, that train station style of piece. And again, that kind of echoes the question of what Granger was going for. This is something that he was thinking about being in a, you know, a concert hall and sort of something that was just sung in a, in a London air. I think that's what he was trying to say early with this piece. So, I think just like you and I, I, I have this deep connection to this piece because it, it just, it's, it's lovely. You know, there isn't yeah. any, there is a bit sharp, there's a bit edginess to this, but he knows how to hold it in place just enough to just kind of tease at certain parts, but he's able to like, cause, cause honestly, I feel like, and I think maybe you talked about this a little bit too, which is the aspect of if we go too far, is it going to sound corny? If I make mm -hmm. fun of the corniness, is it going to sound less corny? And I think that's something that he goes for in his music, which is like, am I going to take my music so seriously that when we get London Air, I think that that necessarily has its specific sort of narrow focus. But mm -hmm. when he has when he plays with these other works, I feel like he's then to say, you know, it's not cutesy, 
but I'll find way to make fun of the cutesy with specific, especially using the French horn for that kind of stuff. I feel like yeah. that on itself uses and utilizes, again, sort of goes back to what I was saying about timbre and how the timbre really makes sense piece and how the timbre really takes a new life. And, and, and again, the solos are sort of lifted out because of the timbres. You know what I mean? And I feel... Mm-hmm. The woodwinds, especially, really do carry this piece a lot, and you can sort of agree with yeah, that I think too. so. And I feel like that really helps echo the end. And you gotta just love the the way that Granger puts the piece together at the end. You know, it just it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't blossom. It just it just ends. And I feel like for me, I don't have to go to therapy because <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> like sort of similar to the first movement you might have to go to therapy for the first movement but the second movement just it just ends in a flourish and i think it it just it it again and i can i can go on and gush and gush forever but he, I, there is so much good things that he's doing and i feel like he's doing it so well because he's doing he's understanding the rules of timbre and and rules of uh, form and context. And I think this one specifically follows a very simple binary form in, in, in mm-hmm. this as well. So just in case you were wondering about form. So, cause we wanted to pop that in there as well, but yeah. Anything else you want to add about this piece? No. I'm Sean Rimkunis. And I'm Hunter Sagona. And we will see you next time for our traditional end of the year Proust questionnaire. Ooh. So until such a time as we see you then, remember to keep listening to what you like.